Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. A very good afternoon and welcome to Chai FM, to Soul to Soul. My name is Rabbi Levi Lipska and I'm standing in for Rabbi Mendel Lipska, my father. And we'll be discussing the parsha of Noach, the weekly portion, and uh, speaking a little bit about how the parsha in general, and specifically this parsha, has a real significance and connection to the times that we find ourselves in, and how to draw some of the vital lessons that a parsha like Parsha Noach, like any parsha, has, and to really make them personal and relevant. You know, up until this moment, since Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we've uh, we've been in the holiday spirit, so to speak, and uh, as soon as that ends, we go straight into Simchas Torah, Sukkot Simchas Torah, and thereafter, almost immediately into Shabbat Bereshit, which in a sense still has a holiday feel, a Yom Tov feel, and this being Parshas Noach, the second Parsha, in essence, is really that first Parsha that we are settled back into the world, settled back into our daily lives. And so after a full week of uh, back to the mundane, Shabbos Parshas Noach is a real welcome as we get ready for Shabbos. And the Parsha actually begins speaking about the offspring of Noach, speaking about the continuation of the generations, the continuation of Hashem having created the people. And it tells us these are the offsprings of Noach, and then it repeats the word Noach. And the Midrash asks the almost basic question, how come the Parsha writes, Hashem in the Torah writes the name of Noach twice, when in truth even one time would have sufficed, and as we well know, not only is Torah incredibly careful with the words it chooses and the amounts of words, but even a single letter is uh, never going to be extra. The parsha, the Torah, is very, very careful with its language and its usage. And therefore, why is it important that the name of Noach, what does it teach us, that the name of Noach is written twice at the beginning of our parsha? So our Medrash tells us that Noach, the word Noach, can be translated as Neacha. And the word Neacha means serenity sense of calmness and the truth is that Noah brought about a deep sense of calm a deep sense of serenity not only for himself on the one hand but also for the world he brought serenity for his ancestors those that came before him those that were already resting in peace in their graves and he also brought serenity for his children and future grandchildren future family he managed to bring a sense of calmness not only in the world below but in the upper worlds as well since the heavenly prosecutions at that time after Noah and the flood the persecutions made by the heavenly court they stopped he also of course brought about a sense of serenity in the lower world and he brought about a sense of serenity here in this world and of course in the world to come and how was this serenity achieved how did Noah achieve this calmness that the world experienced post the flood the Torah tells us that this was achieved specifically by the waters of the flood. As the Torah refers to the waters of the flood, the waters of Noach. And Hasidic thought explains that before the flood, all physical matter was insensitive, was brittle. It had no connection to anything spiritual. There was no way that the physicality could mix with spirituality. It was completely separate. And in such a terrible atmosphere, you can imagine the type of corruption that flourished because people felt little to no accountability for their actions, and anything went at any moment. People could do what they liked, 
how they wished and didn't feel any sort of accountability, had no guilty conscience whatsoever. And Hasidic thought teaches us that the waters of the flood were like a mikveh in a sense, a, a, a ritual bath, and a, a, a sense of serenity was brought about through the waters of the flood, just as the waters of a mikveh bring about a sense of serenity for the individual. So too did the waters of the flood bring about a global sense of serenity through this global mikveh. We'll be back just after the break on 101.9 High FM. High FM, your station of choice since 2008. We've been discussing the concept of a mikveh and what the waters of the rain in essence did for the world at that time, which was completely corrupt, completely insensitive and had no conscience whatsoever. And we say that just as a ritual bath, just as a mikveh gives an individual a sense of slightly more pure thoughts in the day that one goes to the mikveh or that one's conscience agitates you a little bit more, so too, in essence, this global mikveh, the flood, which took place in the generation of Noah, had an incredibly purifying effect on the physical world. And it brought body and soul both to a heightened level of communication with one another. Beforehand, spirituality had no connection with physicality now after the flood. Mind and soul and body could have this communication. And after the flood, the world and those that remained in the world had a deeper conscience and a greater appreciation of God and this made sure that the world would have genuine serenity, a genuine sense of calmness, and ultimately a continued existence. Because even if the people would become corrupt or would sin again, as we know they would, their newfound spiritual sensitivity would ensure that they would always have the motivation to repent, to return to Hashem. And so it would always be worthwhile for Hashem to keep sustaining this world, knowing that now that people had the consciousness even if they would falter, even if we falter, we know that we have a road back, a way to repent and a way to return. The parsha tells us something very interesting. The parsha tells us that Noah was a perfectly righteous individual in his generation. And we take out from that that had he been in a different generation, perhaps in the generation of Abraham, he may not have been considered a tzaddik, he may not have been cons- considered a perfectly righteous human being. And Rashi, the foremost commentator on the Torah, tells us that some of the sages interpret this quite favorably. They say that if he would have lived in a generation of righteous people, then he would have been even more righteous. However, there are others that sadly interpret this derogatory. They say that in comparison to with his generation, absolutely. Noah was righteous. But had he been in Avraham Avinu's generation, then he would not have been considered, considered especially righteous at all. And so we ask a question from the Mishnah. We know from the Mishnah that there's an instruction, a law, that a person has to judge everyone favorably. And so the question we can ask is, how come some of the sages interpreted Noah's standing as a righteous person in a derogative way? They could have just said that he was a righteous person. Why did they have to look at it in a negative way to say that had he been in a different generation, he wouldn't have been considered righteous? And why did the great sage Rabbi Yitzchak conclude that Noah was sinful in the fact that he did not pray for his generation when he could have judged Noah in a favorable way, the same way that Rabbi Yehuda did, and just said, 
Noah was righteous and look what he accomplished, managed to survive with his family, with the children, communicated with God and ultimately was the catalyst that restarted the human existence on the, in the world. And the point is that the, there are many answers to this, but the principle in general of judging people favorably is an admirable trait. And we always try and follow this trait of judging people favorably, except when it could have a misleading result if it's not the case. And in our case, if all of the sages would have judged Noah favorably, that he was totally pious, then people might have concluded that all of Noah's actions, everything that he did, were acceptable for a righteous man. When we actually read that Noah did not pray for his generation to be saved. And in truth, he didn't really believe that the flood was going to come, and that's why he took his time getting it done. He didn't actually believe that Hashem would destroy the world. And so one might think that such behavior is acceptable even for the most righteous of people. And therefore, some of the sages felt the obligation to proclaim that Noach did not in fact represent the epitome of absolute piety. And so we should not learn from all of his ways. Rather, we should not be satisfied in general with saving ourselves, so to speak. But we always have to accept responsibility for the people around us, both physically and both spiritually. And what the sages are teaching us is that sometimes one has to learn from somebody's good deeds. But sometimes we also have to learn from somebody's negative deeds about how not to behave. And we take lessons from each of them, from those that behave appropriately, we take those lessons. And those that don't behave appropriately, we look at that and we say, how can I ensure that that does not happen to me? I look after those around me physically, spiritually, and deeply care for them. You're listening to Chai FM, Soul to Soul. We'll be back just after the break. Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Some of the sages didn't consider Noah to be entirely righteous, only righteous in his generation, because some of the things that he did perhaps were less than favorable, one of those being the fact that he did not pray for the people of his generation. So we learned above, and we spoke about the fact that Noah did not pray for his generation. He didn't pray for their salvation, and that is partially the reason that that generation was entirely destroyed by the flood. Because he knew, essentially, that his own personal safety was assured. Hashem had told him that he would be saved along with his family. And this statement seems to contradict Rashi's statement that Noah spent no less than 120 years rebuking the people to repent. So how do we reconcile these two conflicting opinions? On the one hand, Rashi saying that he spent 120 years rebuking the people, whereas we also say that had he... Or because of the fact that he didn't pray for the people, that is the reason that the generation of, of the flood was destroyed. Yeah, Hasidic teachings tell us and explain to us that what Noah lacked was the quality of self-sacrifice. He had dedication to God, but he lacked self-sacrifice in his dedication to God and to every single command. And there is a command to rebuke your generation, to ensure that your generation returns. And thus, Noah only rebuked the generation because he was commanded to do so. He did indeed rebuke them, but he only did it because Hashem had told him to do so. His main priority was to discharge the obligation to Hashem. Hashem had given him a command, and so he carried out that request. And it didn't necessarily bother him whether the generation would in fact repent. And so his rebuke lacked a sense of sincerity 
and therefore was sadly unsuccessful. In contrast, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses demonstrated self-sacrifice when his generation was at risk, at risk of being eliminated. He pleaded to God, if you forgive their sins, then all is good. If you don't forgive their sins, then erase me from your book that you've written. He showed a tremendous sense of self-sacrifice when praying and ensuring that his generation could be saved. And thus we see a major difference between Moshe and Noah in their types of leadership, in their types of skills, in their types of commitment to Hashem. Noah displayed a commitment to carrying out that which Hashem wanted him to do, but for that reason alone. Whereas Moshe cared deeply, cared sincerely about the people and sincerely was willing to give up any sort of gains that he had made personally in order to save the people. You know, Noach's mission was to take this world of misery, a terrible corrupt world, and transform it into a world of light. And that's why Hashem told him to make a light at Sohar, which has the same letters as Tzara, the Hebrew word for misery, which replaced the misery in the world with light. That was his ultimate mission, to replace this darkness of corruption with light. Same letters, Tzohar and Tzara. He turned, he turned the Tzara, the misery, into Tzohar, into light. The Hebrew word for the ark is, of course, Teva, which can also mean a word. A Teva is also a word, alluding to words of prayer, alluding to Torah study, and therefore the command to make a light for the Teva, when Hashem said to, to, to Noah to make a light for the Teva means that a person should make his words, his Tevot, his own words, each and every one of us words of prayer and Torah study, meaning that our words should shine with light, saturate them with a sense of sincerity and with a deep sense of inner feeling. And how do we accomplish this? How do we make sure that our words, our Tevot are words of light? This can be achieved following two routes. Number one, we remove any type of obstacle in our way that blocks our divine service, meaning just as there were windows in the ark which removed any obstacle which was blocking the light and ensured that the light could come in. Or number two, got to generate fountains of energy from within us. Just like the precious stone which shone from within, we have to generate this inner sense of light, this inner sense of energy which we can then pass out to the world and ensure that the world has the ability to shine forth. We have to become a light not only to ourselves, not only to the people around us, but as is well known, we have to be a light unto all of the nations to make sure that just as Noah shone a light, so too we shine a light to take this world out of misery and into a deep sense of light, comfort, lightness, etc. The Parsha continues as Noah enters the Teva, he enters the Ark after all of the years of having built it and receiving the instructions from God as to how he should go about it, bringing the animals. He needed to bring two of the animals per non-kosher animals and seven of the animals from kosher animals. And Hashem, in this sense, was ensuring that there would be a continuity of life, not only human life, but of course animal life as well, so that the world could restart, the world could reinvigorate itself through the blessing of Hashem immediately after the flood. And the sages tell us that what in essence happened is not only did the skies open up, but the wellsprings 
of the earth as well burst forth. So there was this double sense of, of flood from below and from above. It was, it was, as you can imagine, an unbelievable sight to behold the world going into complete destruction. And there sat on the water a little teva with the remnants of all living things on the planet. What did the flood come about to do? What was the point of the flood, as we said earlier? The entire reason that Hashem created this flood wasn't to destroy necessarily. It was, of course, to destroy evil, to destroy the negativity, to destroy the corruption. But the flood came about to purify the earth because the earth had become filled with robbery, with corruption to the extreme, that there was no other way. The world, the earth required a tremendous sense of purification. And it was for this reason that the flood waters came for 40 days, just as a mikvah, a ritual bath, must contain a minimum of 40 sa'ah, 40 cubits of rainwater, if it is going to purify somebody that is ritually impure, because the generation of the flood, those people that had behaved badly for them, the flood was in essence a punishment. They had behaved terribly. The world could not continue with those individuals. They lacked consciousness. They, they lacked any sort of connection with, sense, with, with, with spirituality. So for them, it was indeed a punishment. But for the world itself, the waters were a blessing. Because the world was cleansed through them. So on the one hand, you speak of waters of destruction. A flood comes about to destroy. Yes, indeed, it did. It destroyed the negativity in the world. But at the same time, a tremendous sense of blessing, a trem tremendous sense of cleansing to make sure that the world could now appreciate and be sensitive to spirituality once again. And this sheds an incredible light on the Torah's statement that the waters were both mild rain, meaning blessing, and at the same time torrential floodwaters. We know that the greatest blessing could also be the same curse. Without rain, God should help us, as we need, as we know here in Johannesburg, we could do with a serious amount of rain. But sometimes too much blessing is also a curse. Mild rains, those are rains of blessing. Torrential, destructive rains, those are rains of absolute curse so it can be explained that the Torah says that these were both mild rains meaning rains of blessing yet at the same time these torrential floodwaters because even though the floods destroyed all of the inhabitants of the world it still had a positive effect by cleansing and by purifying the physicality itself so that that physicality could now be sensitive enough to connect with spirituality and they could communicate whereas before physicality and spirituality remained completely and entirely separate they had no connection one to the other the parasha continues that the flood lasts for 40 days the flood finally subsides and Hashem now remembers the prayers of Noah and the decent behavior of the wild animals the domesticated animals that were with Noah in the ark and he begins to pass this spirit of consolation and a spirit of relief over the earth as the waters begin to subside. The wellsprings from the depths of the earth began to close. The skies began to close and the rain from the skies were held back. And the water progressively receded off the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the parasha tells us that the water was diminished. However, the base of the ark, the base of the Teva, was still submerged. 
in, in, you know, which was still, it was still submerged in water. It finally came to rest on Har Ararat, on the Ararat Mountains. And it was in the seventh month, in the month of Sivan, on the seventeenth day of the month, that finally the ark comes to rest. And what happened was until the tenth of the month, the waters consist, constantly and consistently diminished until the mountains began to, the peaks of the mountain began to appear. And after another 40 days, Noah was able to open the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent out the raven, as we know, and uh, the, how that played out, sent the raven, and then sent the dove, etc., etc. And the question was, you know, Hashem does many things. And our question is, why is it necessary to transform Hashem's attribute of justice to be merciful? We know that we want Hashem, when having to meet out justice, we want it to be merciful. Why is that important? Would it not have been sufficient for Hashem's attribute of justice merely just to have suppressed it and subdued it? Why did it have to be in the way that it was with a sense of mercy? He could have just simply made it less of a justice, so to speak. Hashem, however, wanted to make a covenant with Noach. He wanted to have a pact with Noach that the world would never be destroyed again by a flood. And for this to be affected there needed to be an absolute certainty that the attribute of justice would never rise again and attempt to wipe out the world. There are many attributes in this world, justice, kindness, severity. And Hashem had to show mercy with his state of just, justice because had justice not had any sense of mercy within it, then Hashem could not guarantee that the world would not be destroyed again by flood. So in order to make this pact with Noach that he would in fact never destroy the world again with a flood, he needed to make sure that the attributes of justice couldn't rise up again to once again to wipe out the world. And therefore, it was incredibly crucial that the attribute of justice be permanently transformed to mercy and not just temporarily subdued. So it didn't help if Hashem would temporarily subdue the justice. The concept of justice had to be transformed to be justice with mercy. If one is not able to judge with mercy, it's a terrible judgment. And this is what Hashem was trying to show Noah. I'm going to make this pact with you. I'm going to ensure that the world is never destroyed again, but at the same time, I'm going to do that by making sure that there is never justice without a sense of mercy, without a sense of compassion. The Parsha continues as we read the story of how the raven and then the dove goes out twice until the dove does not return, Noah realizing that the world is now dry enough to be inhabited again. And Noah and his family leave the ark after all of this time. They come back into the world. They see and they experience the destruction that has taken place, but also sense the serenity, sense this calmness that had been brought about over the world. And Hashem speaks to Noah and he says, you must go out of your ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. Bring out every single living thing with you, every single animal and all the birds, all the creeping things. Everything should swarm upon the earth again. Be fruitful, be multiply, begin to re-inhabit the world and make sure that the world is sustained. And we think about the question of why is it that Hashem had to instruct Noah to leave the ark? Surely, after all that time, being cooped up in the teva, in the ark, Noah and his family would be jumping, ready to leave the ark it seems superfluous for Hashem to have to instruct Noah to leave the ark. And what is 
the lesson that can be learned from the fact that Hashem has to instruct Noah. He says, go out. You need to go out. And he says, you, your wife, your children. He goes through every single living being that was in that ark. You all need to go out. Why does Hashem have to speak to Noah and say, go out? It is now time. And Hasidic thought explains that a person in general might be tempted to lock yourself away, lock ourselves away in our arcs, so to speak, our own arcs of spiritual, you know, personal spirituality. Sometimes we feel comfortable in our own little cocoon, our own little zone, and we, we may feel tempted to stay there and not experience the world, not interact with the world. But the Torah teaches us an important lesson that every single Jew must go out of his ark take responsibility for the world around us. We cannot insulate ourselves and not care about how others are faring. We cannot say that I want to be in this world of Torah and mitzvot and not experience the outside world. I don't care what happens to everybody else. Hashem, by virtue of telling Noah, giving him the instruction of go out of the ark, is telling each and every one of us, don't get caught up in your own ark. Don't get caught up in your own cocoon. You've got to go out into the world. You've got to experience the world. You've got to interact with the world. Because if you don't, then what happens to the person that is on the outside of your ark? They get caught in the torrential rains of the world, the torrential rains of physicality. Don't lock yourselves away in the ark. Come out. Experience the world. Be with people. Care for people. Care for those around you. And with that, you can truly bring a sense of serenity, a sense of calm into this world. You are listening to 101.9 High FM Soul to Soul. We're going to be back just after the break. High FM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Lipska, and we're discussing the parsha of Noah. And we're up to the point where Noah comes out. He's instructed to come out of the teva with his family, and Hashem commands Noah to populate the world to begin having children for him, his sons, etc., etc. Now, what Hashem notices is that Noah was scared to have children. And so he said to Noah and to Noah's sons who were with him, he says, look here, I'm setting up this covenant with you and with those that come after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domesticated animals, the wild animals, all of the animals on the earth, any living creature that was inside of the ark, I'm going to confirm my covenant with you that never again will any flesh be wiped out by floodwaters and there'll never be a flood again to destroy the earth. Hashem was saying this so that they would be confident to have children, to continue the world, to continue having families. And Hashem says that this is the sign, this is my confirmation of the covenant that I'm placing between me and you and with every single living thing that is with you for all of the generations to come. And Hashem says, I've placed my rainbow in the cloud and the rainbow will be a sign of a covenant between myself and the earth. And that when that Hashem says, when I consider causing clouds of darkness and clouds of destruction to come upon the earth, the rainbow will appear in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant that is between me and you and with every living creature. And remember that I had made that covenant not to destroy the world. Now Rashi, the foremost commentator on the Torah, tells us that a rainbow appears in the world when Hashem is thinking of reenacting the destruction of the flood. But this assertion seems to be and appears to be totally outrageous. How could one possibly accept that every single time a rainbow appears, Hashem is actually thinking of destroying the entire world? And if it were not for the covenant which he had made with Noah, he would actually consider doing so. So rather, we need to conclude 
that when you see a rainbow in the sky on a regular basis, you have to conclude that your generation is one that is perhaps as depraved, God forbid, as the generation of the flood. We're all, is this what we have to think? That we're all as if we were the generation of the flood. Clearly such a conclusion would be absolutely unacceptable. And therefore at the literal level, it seems that Rashi's intention here is that Hashem shows a rainbow when it arises in God's mind to destroy part of the world. Meaning, if there is one location on earth where Hashem is so dissatisfied with the people to the extent that he regrets creation, then Hashem makes a rainbow to indicate that he has promised never to wipe out even one part of the world in the same indiscriminate way that he did when he decimated the world with the flood. And consequently, when a person sees a rainbow, even if he lives in a righteous neighborhood, a righteous town, he can be assured that in some location in the world, people are corrupt to the extent that God would destroy them if it weren't for the covenant of Noah. And therefore, even when we see the rainbow, we should do something good, something positive for this world. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. We'll take a short break and we'll be back to conclude. High FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. Soul to Soul, we're concluding the discussion on Parshas Noah. And what lands up happening is that Noah and his family come out of the ark and they begin to repopulate the world. And it doesn't take long before the world begins to fall into the trap of corruption once again. Of course, at this time, it's a little bit different. And what happens is we speak of this generation of dispersion. There was a ploy to build this tower of Babel that would reach to the heavens and they would be able to encounter God. And our question is, why was the generation of dispersion, those who built the Tower of Babel, so afraid of becoming scattered upon the face of the earth? Why were they so afraid of having to go all over? What would be the problem with inhabiting the world with people? What were they afraid of? The people of that generation wanted to draw down God's blessing, but without following God's will. And they understood that the divine energy will always flow into a place of peace and harmony. And so they figured that by staying together in one giant community, where there was in essence harmony, they would bring down enough divine blessing to grant them physical blessings of prosperity. And therefore their primary fear was that of being scattered, for the destruction of their community would stop that flow of easy blessing, so to speak, from Hashem. And the key to their unity was the language. They all spoke the same language. They all spoke Hebrew at the time, that being the language of the Torah and the language with, with, with which Hashem created the world. It was the holy tongue, and they knew that if they spoke that, they would be provided with a powerful tool in order to unify themselves as one. And so in order to thwart their plan of building this great tower, Hashem took away that power that was so unifying, the speech. He gave them each a different language, and they had no ways to communicate with one another. And he said, let us descend and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other's language. And by this, he stopped this terrible action of wanting to draw down Hashem's blessing, but without listening to God's will. You know, often in life we want Hashem's blessing, but we don't want to behave in a way that brings Hashem's blessing. We want him to have easy blessing transported to us without really working and connecting with Hashem. This week, Parshat Noach will be read tomorrow morning. Many shuls, I'm sure, will be emptier than usual. And, of course, we wish the Boka best, best of luck. May they bring back the cup and unify our nation as they've done so in the past. But as Jewish people, we know 
that we should be in shul, we should daven for ourselves, for our communities, for the boka, of course, as well. It brings about a tremendous sense of unity in our country. So do the right thing, be in shul, support the boka, and have a beautiful Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom.